0: The law demanded and still does complete, perfect obedience. So achieving righteousness by our obedience to God in a way that satisfies God's standard is utterly impossible. This righteousness based on law will never get you into God's presence.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What are the key implications of being made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue the series, Human Responsibility. In Romans 10, after Paul describes every man's responsibility to believe in the gospel, He explains that such a truth finds its foundation in Scripture. Paul is simply saying that the entire Bible teaches that God only has one way of salvation, through Christ alone, by faith alone. We as Christians must cherish this truth and proclaim this truth to the lost world because it is the only way anyone can be reconciled to God. How are you doing, friend? Are you sharing this glorious and good news to those in your life? Let's join Tom now as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed.
0: One of my favorite authors is Sinclair Ferguson. In his new book entitled Maturity, Sinclair has a chapter on the issue of assurance. Now, I can't tell you yet that I totally recommend the entire book because I haven't finished it, but if it's like the rest of his books, I'm sure I will end up recommending it because I I really love his writing. But in this particular book, Maturity, he has a chapter on the issue of assurance. And in that chapter, he discusses the difference between being loved and feeling loved. Or we could say between the reality of love and having assurance of that love. He illustrates that by using just a common, ordinary example of human life, the love between a young man and a woman. He says, think of a young woman, or excuse me, a young man who has truly come to love a young woman. He is himself completely committed to her. He is confident of his love for her. Her friends may equally be confident of his love for her. So his love, understand this, is an objective reality. It simply is. It is true. However, even if she truly loves him and trusts him, she may still not be convinced in her own soul of his love for her. He may have told her dozens of times that he loves her, hundreds of times. Her, her friends may have assured her often of his love. And yet, she may still not be secure in his love. This is not the objective reality. He loves her. There's no question of his love for her. Rather, this is the subjective experience of his love. Now, there are many reasons that this might be true, but the bottom line is you can't force assurance. Hopefully, she eventually comes to understand and embrace that and to live in the reality of it. That may, She may come to understand His love in a moment, in a sort of a moment of sudden illumination. She may slowly and gradually come to the fullness of that experience of His love. She may become convinced of it intellectually before she feels it emotionally. And there are steps, of course, that both he and she can take to gradually convince her in, a, in an everyday living, breathing sort of way of his love. Now why do I share that and why did Sinclair? It's because that's exactly how it is with our assurance of salvation. There are issues beyond the objective reality. I mean the first problem, frankly, is that you can think you are loved objectively by God when you're not. This is false assurance. If you struggle or think that might be an issue in your case, go back and listen to the messages that we walked through in the early verses of Romans chapter 8 as Paul compares those who are in the flesh with those who are in the Spirit. Or read 1 John, a book given to us to help us understand whether or not we're truly in Christ. But the other problem is even more common, I think, and that is you can be genuinely loved by God and yet not have fully come to enjoy the reality of that love subjectively. How does that happen? How can we come to a deeper subjective appreciation of the reality of God's objective love? Well, today, I think Paul helps us in the passage that we come to in Romans. He helps us grow in our subjective experience of the assurance of God's love. How does he do that? by helping us understand the objective reality of God's commitment to us and God's promises to all who have come to faith in Christ. We're studying Paul's explanation, the larger section here, of the reality of human responsibility. Paul has dealt with in chapter 9 the the reality of divine election, and we looked at that in detail. But beginning at the end of chapter 9, verse 30, and running through chapter 10, he deals with the issue of human responsibility. When people hear the gospel but don't believe the gospel, don't believe in Jesus, including the Jewish people, which is really the focus of this section, those people are personally responsible. Now, what are the primary factors that contribute to the human responsibility for not believing the gospel? Well, we, we looked at the first one, the end of chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. It is a failure to understand the purpose of God's law. A lot of times when people refuse to believe the gospel, it's because they have already come to a flawed understanding of what God's law is about. They think the law is there for them to earn their way into God's favor. They think they can be good enough. And that failure to understand the purpose of God's law leads to the human responsibility of failing to believe the gospel. By the way, that is a common reality in religious people, Jewish or otherwise. There's a second primary factor, and this is the one we're looking at now. It is an unwillingness to accept salvation by faith alone. Sort of builds on the first one, but but this is a different category. An unwillingness to accept salvation by faith alone. This is chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. People are responsible for rejecting the gospel because they simply will not come God's way. They will not come by means of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why is that true? Well, in verses 1 through 4, it's often born out of an abysmal ignorance of faith. Paul says in verses 1 to 4, they didn't know. He didn't mean that they hadn't heard the gospel. That's the very point he's making is they did hear the gospel. They didn't really know it. They they weren't gripped by it. They didn't embrace it as true. It was a self-imposed ignorance. They didn't understand that was God's way. Another problem we saw in verses 5 through 8 is not only are they ignorant of God's way, but they have have embraced the diametrical opposite way. They have embraced the righteousness based on law. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Paul is really implying here that the Jewish people didn't take the law of God seriously enough. It wasn't enough to keep it pretty well, more than not. The law demanded and still does complete, perfect obedience. So achieving righteousness by our obedience to God in a way that satisfies God's standard is utterly impossible. This righteousness based on law will never get you into God's presence. But unfortunately, many people embrace that way. That's the common human way for religious people. But then Paul contrasts that in verses six through eight with the righteousness based on faith. Look at verse six. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. I made the point with you last week that when you look at these verses in context, essentially, back in in Deuteronomy, essentially Moses was saying, and Paul is saying here, the righteousness based on faith doesn't demand some impossible condition of us. You don't have to do something Herculean. And what it does demand is very, very accessible. Look at verse 8. What does it say, this message of faith? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. You see, to gain a right standing before God doesn't require some Herculean superhuman effort from you. It's easily accessible because it only involves your mouth and your heart. How? How does it involve your mouth and your heart? Well, he explains in verses nine through 10 when he explains the dual aspects of faith here's what faith is. Here's what it looks like. Saving faith has two basic aspects. Number one, verse nine, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. We we unpacked that and all that that means. I'm not going to go back over that, but let me summarize it for you this way. You must believe in your heart. In other words, it's not enough to believe the facts. This is where your heart ascends to the truth. You believe in your heart both the claims of Jesus Christ, all that He said about Himself and who He is, and the saving work of Jesus Christ His perfect life, His substitutionary death, and His resurrection. The second aspect of faith is found also in verse 9. It is you must confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. What does that mean, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord? Well, we looked at it again in great detail last time. It means two things. It means that you confess that Jesus is God, He is God. And secondly, it means you confess that He is your master, He he is your owner. You belong to Him. Now, I noted for you that this confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord includes repentance from sin because it means completely renouncing and rejecting your old master, sin and self and Satan. If you're going to own Jesus as master, then you can't hang on to you as master or sin as master. So it includes repentance. It also includes trusting in Christ alone for salvation. He is your sole hope and submitting your will to Him, Jesus is Lord. So those are the dual aspects of faith. This was the message Paul preached, and he rehearses it in a different way in verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, which results in righteousness, a right standing before God, and with the mouth he confesses, Jesus is Lord, and that results in salvation. These are simply different sides of the same reality. Believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Now that brings us today to the practical implications of faith. The practical implications of faith as the way that we're made right with God. And Paul rehearses these in verses 11 through 13. Let's read it together. Romans 10, you follow along, beginning in verse 11. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved." Now having explained to us the only way to be right with God is the way of faith alone In the work of Christ alone, that's what we studied in the previous section, Paul now wants to show us the implications of that way of faith. Here he draws out the key implications of the way of faith. You'll notice that verse 11 begins with the word for. This shows that he's still building on that same concept of this this way of receiving righteousness based on the work of Jesus Christ received by faith. So let's look at these implications then. Here are the key implications of the way of faith. That is, being made right with God by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. The first implication he draws out here is this. Its foundation is scriptural. The foundation of this path of faith as a way to be right with God is completely and utterly biblical, You see, Paul's not done proving to us that this way of being right with God is what the Scriptures teach. He's already done this. Remember back in chapter 4, in order to punctuate for us that this is how you're right with God, we're justified by faith alone, he goes back to the, the story of Abraham, and he shows us in Abraham's life, this is the way. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Then he gives us the illustration of David. David, a terrible sinner, who in Psalm 32 says, blessed is the man to whom you do not credit sin. Speaking of justification. Then in chapter 10, we saw last week, verses 6 through 8, he quotes Deuteronomy. And there he shows us that Moses taught the righteousness based on faith. So the Old Testament is replete with this way of salvation this path to be right with god but to drive home his point paul here in our text quotes yet another old testament text to that end look at verse 11 notice how it begins for the scripture says for the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed now paul has already quoted this verse but he's given us a fuller version of it at the end of chapter 9 Go back to chapter 9, verse 33. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And here's our text. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, there in chapter 9, verse 33, Paul's emphasis in quoting that that passage is on Christ as the cornerstone. That's really the focus. Christ is the cornerstone that God himself has laid and yet he's been rejected by men. Here in in verse 11, he quotes that same passage again, but with a different point of emphasis. Instead of focusing on Christ as the cornerstone, here he's focusing on faith, on believing. He wants to emphasize the critical nature of faith. This verse, by the way, verse 11, is from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Look at verse 11 again. Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Paul's argument is that this Old Testament statement from the prophet Isaiah is teaching this, that faith and faith alone is the sole means of being right with God. We looked at it when we were at the end of chapter 9, but essentially God has laid this cornerstone, this massive stone against which everything is to be true. And you, every individual here, only has two choices. Either you can, you can fight against that stone with, with antipathy or you can react with apathy and either way you will be shattered by the stone. Either you'll be shattered by your resistance in this life or at the judgment you'll be crushed by it. Or the other option is to throw yourself completely on that stone as your only hope. And if you do that, then you will not be disappointed. That's what he's saying. You throw yourself on the stone in faith and total trust and dependence, and as a result, you will not be ashamed. Now look at what verse 11 says. Whoever believes in him, obviously we're talking about Christ. We're talking about Messiah, the cornerstone. And it says believes in Him could also be translated believes on Him. This expression describes more than simply believing the facts about Jesus of Nazareth. Rather, it is entrusting yourself to someone. That's what it means. To believe on someone is to entrust yourself to them. This is the third element of faith, fiducia, or trust that we talked about last week. You must throw your entire reliance on Him as the only source of your support and hope of heaven. Notice I love this in verse 11, all that Isaiah requires is to believe and nothing else. Now don't misunderstand, that's not faith as you define it, that's faith as God defines it as we just saw back in verses 9 and 10. But where there is faith like that, where you believe in your heart the claims of Jesus and His saving work, and you you confess Him as your Lord, as your God and your Master, where there's that kind of faith, notice what he says, whoever believes like that will not be disappointed. Now I have to tell you that in some ways that is a disappointing translation. Because when we use the English word disappoint, it's kind of a weak word. I mean, you know, it'd be like if you go to lunch after the service and you're sitting there in your favorite Chinese restaurant. I just threw a craving on a lot of you. I'm not going to the Chinese restaurant because you'll all be there. So, But you're sitting there in your favorite Chinese restaurant and you look down through the list and, uh, and you you order your favorite thing on the menu. Pad Thai, or whatever it is. And the waiter, the, is that I don't know if that's Chinese or not, but, but the waiter comes and... And the waiter says, I'm sorry, we don't have that today. What are you? You're, you're disappointed. Oh, I'm disappointed. That's not this word. As we saw back in chapter nine, verse 33, this Greek word that's translated disappointed means to be dishonored, to be disgraced, or most often, to be put to shame. It's the shame and disappointment that would come to someone whose faith or hope is shown to be vain, to be empty. And notice Isaiah uses the future tense, and Paul reflects that in his quoting of it here, will not be disappointed. He's pointing to the future. Specifically, he's referring to the future judgment. He's referring to the shame and disappointment you would experience if you arrived at the final judgment and you discovered that you are still in your sins, that you still bear your sins rather than Jesus Christ, that you have not come to truly understand Him, or or, or to believe in Him rather, and you you have now the weight of your sin, and you're standing there before God knowing that you are guilty he knows everyone. He opens, as, as Revelation 20 describes, He opens all the books, and all the books are unfolded, the story of your life, and every single sin you have ever committed is in the omniscience of God, imprinted in His divine memory, and you are exposed for the sinner you are. And you will then be put to shame as He says, depart from Me. I never knew you into everlasting punishment. That's what this word disappointed means. It means permanently, eternally put to shame. Let me just say, if you have not thrown yourself on the cornerstone, on Jesus Christ, that is what awaits you. You will be put to shame in just that way. But if you have believed in Jesus Christ, This is God's promise to you. Look at verse 11 again. God promises that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, in the way that we've just described in verses 9 and 10, you will not find yourself put to shame at the judgment. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. You will never be disappointed. Now, Paul's main reason for quoting this Old Testament text is to prove that faith is faith alone in the work of the messiah alone has a solid scriptural foundation folks you don't have to wonder if this is god's way because he has expressly declared it in his word there's a second implication that paul draws out here in chapter 10 and it's it's this its application is personal look again at verse 11 For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, Paul does something here that you unfortunately are not able to see in most of your English translations. In spite of his profound respect for scripture, he believes it is the inerrant, inspired word of God. That's clear from so many texts. But here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God himself, Paul intentionally changes the wording of Isaiah 28, 16. As I said, it's not easy to see, particularly in the NAS. If you have the the ESV in this case, uh, most of the time the NAS is more literal. I think in this case, the the ESV wins. But here's, here's what I want you to see. Look at your Bibles and notice what Paul says in verse 11. It says, whoever, note that word, whoever believes,
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 9 of his series, Human Responsibility. Tom will bring you Part 10 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org.